What I want us to do this morning is start by reading two separate but complementary passages. They are two passages that both talk about how sin works. How sin works. So the first is in James chapter 1 verses 13 through 16. James says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. That's a very familiar text that talks about the progression of sin from temptation to enticement to action and ultimately to death. The second text I want us to read together is Proverbs chapter 7. This is going to be our primary text this morning and we are going to read all of the chapters. I'm not going to try to put it up on the screen. It'd be 20 or 30 slides. I'm just going to ask you to turn there. And follow along with me in Proverbs chapter 7. And you'll want to leave your Bible marked there, if not open there, uh, for most of our study together. Proverbs 7. Verse 1. My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching. As the apple of your eye, bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister, and call insight your intimate friend, to keep you from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. That is the context of what is about to be said. Uh, wisdom to keep you from the adulteress. More on that here in just a moment, but let's finish out the chapter. For at the window of my house, I have looked out through my lattice and I have seen among the simple, I have perceived among the youths, a young man lacking sense. Passing along the street near her corner, that's the forbidden woman from a moment ago, taking the road to her house, In the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and wayward, her feet do not stay at home. Now in the street, now in the market, and at every corner she lies in wait. She seizes him and kisses him, and with bold face she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices, and today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I have found you. I have spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till the morning. Let us delight ourselves with love, for my husband is not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him, and at full moon he will come home. With much seductive speech she persuades him. With her smooth talk she compels him. 
And all at once he follows her as an ox goes to the slaughter or as a stag is caught fast till an arrow pierces its liver. As a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. So, James chapter 1. Sin there is, is generic. Sin is being discussed far more generally. Sin in general. In Proverbs chapter 7, there's obviously a specific kind of sin that's being discussed. It's fornication and adultery. Um, what they have in common, however, in, in James chapter 1 and the same in Proverbs chapter 7, there is a general progression of choices and actions. There's a series of steps in Proverbs 7 on the part of the young man that ultimately results in a similar end, spiritual death. So some of the particulars of this young man's fall, some of those particulars are obviously peculiar to sins of this sort, sexual sins. But a lot of them aren't. A number of the details that we're told in this, in this story could occur in any aspect of sinfulness on our part. So what I want us to do is study this chapter of Proverbs this morning. And in doing so, it seems to me that in this text... There are six steps that are all indicative of an attitude that we can have towards sin. And whether or not you have been guilty of the particular sins of Proverbs 7, if you have sinned, then we've been guilty of taking these steps and, and of these motivations. And the point of this lesson is that if you and I can interrupt the process before it reaches fruition, then we can avoid the sin. And if we don't, we end up with it costing us our eternity with God, as is pictured in both of these texts. So six steps on the way to sin from Proverbs chapter 7. Step number one is going to be going near the edge. Going near the edge. You find this down in verse 8 if you want to look there. Verse 8. Verse 8 shows this young man traveling from point A to point B, and in doing so, notice he passes Along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house. Um, depending on how your translators have rendered this verse, depending on where you put the emphasis as you read it, it appears from the text that while he takes the road to her house, it's not saying he's plugged her address into the GPS to go directly there. That's where he was headed. But rather, he's headed somewhere else and he takes the street to get there, but he makes a point of passing close to this representation of temptation along the street near her corner, taking the road to her house, the road that leads to her way. He makes sure to take that. So in this particular case, what you have is this specific sin. You have this woman offering intimate relations with this young man. But it can just as easily be the street that has the bar that offers the alcohol. It could be the street where your friends live and they don't engage in activities that are godly. They take part in stuff you don't need to be around. It could be the, the website 
offering content that Christians don't need to consume. It could be the computer in private when nobody's around offering that content and we get close. Starting off this whole lesson, you just simply cannot emphasize enough and say enough about staying away to begin with. So as far away from sinful things as you can. The trouble, what leads to step number two that we'll get to here in just a minute, is we want that glance, we want that peak, we want just a sample, and technically perhaps we think we're still safe. There was a test offered, as far as I know this is a true story, but it may just be a, um, an illustration, um, for bus drivers for an elementary school that uh, was in a town of, of high elevation. So the, the school was actually at the top of, of one of the higher hills, and what they did as a part of their test was make sure their bus drivers could drive on those sorts of roads. So they required their bus drivers to take the bus on this precarious trip up to the top of this, this small mountain, where the school was located. And as each driver stepped into the bus trying to show off their skills, when they got to some of those mountainous roads, some of the bus drivers got as close to that edge as they could, trying to show that superintendent who was traveling with them, I know exactly where the outside edge of the bus is. I know exactly how to keep us on the road, even at the outside edges. I can drive that deftly. Some of the drivers, on the other hand, hugged that center line all the way up, staying as far over as possible, and even sometimes drifting all the way over into the other lane so as to stay as far away from the edge as possible. Some of the drivers said, ah, oh, they're just afraid of the edge. They're not going to get the job. They don't have confidence in their driving abilities. They did get the job. Because the superintendent said, if my kids were going to be on that bus, I want the person who stays as far away from the danger as possible. And similarly, there isn't any virtue in getting as close to sin as we can. You might remember the story, um, awful story. A few years ago, a man took his son to a ball game. When the ball came in his direction, he reached out over the railing to try to catch it. And he fell. He didn't make it. Um... Not to make a joke about that kind of thing, but I think I can safely guarantee you that sort of accident will never, ever happen to me. And it is not because I am so sure-footed. My balance is atrocious. It is because I am profoundly afraid of heights. And because of that, I stay as far away from the edges of anything that I can. I think I mentioned to you once before, um, a number of years ago, several friends and I visited the Ponce de Leon Lighthouse near Daytona, Florida. When we got to the top of it, I could not feel my legs. Um, I don't know if you can tell, there is a massive amount of fencing around this thing. Uh, perhaps you can see the fencing along it vertically, but up above it, there's fencing. You couldn't climb over this fence if you wanted to. I don't know who would, but you couldn't do it. You are completely caged in. I don't care. I hugged the walls of that tower, enjoying the view, but anxious to get back down. I think I mentioned to you a girl I was seeing at the time decided she was going to run in circles. She didn't feel the fear about it. She was teasing me, just flailing her arms, la, 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 running around. We didn't last long. Um, even with that fence, I, I'm, I, I don't need the fence. I'm not going anywhere near that edge. 
And the point I want to make to you is I believe all of us as servants of Jesus Christ need to realize that this whole process of sin in Proverbs 7 won't happen. It will be entirely shortcutted if we act towards sin the way sane people act about heights and stay away from them. If you stay away from the edge, it's not a problem. So sure, technically, you're still safe, just right there on the cusp of it all. Um, I know some preachers who like to come to the edge of the podium as they're preaching, and they put their feet halfway over the edge. They'll bring their Bible with them, they're making their points, and they balance themselves right on that edge. You know, men's shoes have that platform behind there, and they'll kind of just kind of hang there on the middle of their feet. A lot of them go a long time without that becoming a problem until they become just another statistic of a preacher that goes flying into the Lord's Supper table and the building gets new carpet. You've got this sense of technically I'm safe. I could put my feet this far. I'm not falling. I'm still all right. But there's no question I'd run a greater risk of falling perched at the edge of this, this podium area than I do right here. So this young man in Proverbs 7, he passes along the street near her corner. He takes the way that goes to her house. And then because he wants to get close, he wants to draw near to that place. Notice that step number two is he begins sneaking around. Verse nine says that he takes the way to her house in the twilight, in the evening, at the time of night and darkness. So he goes there under the cover of darkness because if he chooses to do what's wrong, nobody will be able to see him. Um, old man once said when I was a boy mom would send me to the store with just a dollar to purchase some things at the grocery and I could come back with a pound of bacon a dozen eggs a gallon of milk five pounds of sugar and a loaf of bread he said you can't do that today because all the stores have cameras now when we want to do the things we shouldn't we go about them sneakily try to make sure that no one sees at least if you have any sense of shame you do we go out more or less after dark so maybe we hide our temper. We hide our crassness. We hide that and we smile at everybody at worship. And then we show all that to the people we come home to. Or we hide our covetousness and we couch it in terms that make it seem all right. We hide our lust or our selfishness and we keep those things to ourselves. We don't want anybody else to know about it. If they knew about it, then they might become like the friend that Proverbs also speaks about. Um, as we referenced this morning in our Bible class, the friend who, who could wound us potentially by telling us the truth. And we don't want them to know. We don't want to hear the truth, even though some of that could help and it could keep us accountable. Maybe we don't want help. In Ephesians 5 and verse 11, Paul makes the statement, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. Unfruitful works of darkness. Paul says, bring them into the light. We need to expose our problems, our difficulties with light. In the text of Ephesians 5, it's, it's the light of Jesus and his word. But in general, if there's something that we're struggling with, keeping it private, completely private, does not help. And sometimes what we need to do is ex uh, expose those difficulties to the light with honesty, sometimes with accountability. 
Sometimes we need someone to know what our difficulties are so that they can help us stay in the light. If this young man had a companion with him as he was traveling, or if he had told his parent or his friend, or perhaps if he were married, his wife, I am going to such and such a place, I'm going to arrive at this place at this time, knowing in his mind this accountability can help me beat the temptation to take the way that goes by her house then perhaps he wouldn't have gotten caught up with this sin. But he takes the way that gets him close, and then he makes sure to go at a time that will be opportune in case he wants to do something that he should not. And that's the the third step. That's the problem. He wants to do this thing that he should not. He desires the freedom to make this choice. Notice verse 10 and 11. And behold, the woman meets him, dressed as a prostitute, wily of heart. She is loud and rebellious. Her feet do not stay at home. There is within us this desire to just do what we want to do. And maybe you've never had this particular temptation, but just to do what you want to do. Nothing held back, no limitations forced upon you, no guilt, no worry. Just doing what you want to do. Um, it is oftentimes, um, amusing to me what they try to do with commercials these days. We skip them as often as possible, but some of these commercials, um, you know, you see a milk commercial, people are pretty much just drinking milk the way everybody drinks milk, uh, cereal commercial. They're eating cereal the way everybody else, you know, eats cereal. Although everyone seems pretty alert and chipper for that early in the morning. Um, but you know, normal sort of fare. There was, however... A Miracle Whip commercial back in 2007. I don't know if you remember this thing. I can't forget it. When the ad campaign first came out, I mean, I I don't know if you can tell what's going on here. They are having roof parties. Everybody's got sandwich. There's somebody with a guitar. Suddenly, they're at the beach. They're just going crazy over here, and, and she will not tone it down. She is Miracle Whip, and she will not tone it down. The whole idea was, don't be so mayo. Does anybody remember this at all? Just me that can't get rid of it? I'm sorry for the quality of the pictures. If you can imagine it, nobody sought to preserve this in high definition. But they are having the greatest of times because their sandwiches have Miracle Whip on them. They're running around roof parties with the coolest looking people, running on the beach, jumping in the pools, all of course with a sandwich in tow. Um, And that tagline, don't be so mayo. And they even go on to explain it. Don't be bland. Don't be plain. Don't be dull. Live it up. Now, how Miracle Whip is supposed to help you do that was lost on everyone. But what about alcohol? In every alcohol commercial I've ever seen, they are having fun like I have never known. Or whoever's the spokesperson is just the coolest of the cool. Even the Miracle Whip people look like a bunch of of, of nerds compared to these folks. And there's something in people that says it'd be pretty great to be with a bunch of people who are just doing what they want, not worrying about later on, having fun, no guilt, no obligation. They're laughing, they're holding up their bottles, they're all friendly with each other, they're having a great guilt-free time with one another. And you can see that, and it's not hard to get the point. When you've got some beer or vodka surrounded by four women and the most interesting man in the world. Why do they pitch these things this way? 
Because it appeals, this idea that you can be free, unfettered. You can have fun, you can cut loose, you can do what you want to do. And yet, in our better minds, in our more Christ-like minds, we've got to ask ourselves, this is the life? What they're presenting? It is interesting to me that when describing the children of Israel at the foot of Mount Sinai, when they received the law, but they didn't know it yet because Moses hadn't come down. You might remember what the text says. It says they sat down to eat and they rose up to play. And he certainly doesn't mean softball or something like that. He means debauchery, abandonment. Do what you like. It's life without rules or only the rules that you set. And if you've ever been tempted by any kind of sin, there is at least some part of us that wants that. And when I say us, I do mean us. Um, If you haven't caught on yet, your preacher, your elders, Christians trying to grow as well. So I get it. I have lived it. But to talk about how there are no rules and you can just have fun and there are no repercussions... It's just not true. Because behind all of those depictions of absolute freedom, of cutting loose, of doing what you want, where you want, with whom you want, when you want, behind all those depictions are the realities of life. And oftentimes the broken, shattered lives and futures and plans and the physical and spiritual poverty spent by a life just living it up or... or, um, um, as the price to someone who spends their life just living it up. It's the parable of the lost son. That's a really simple story. Sometimes we struggle to get its point, though. In Romans 6 and verse 16, Paul says, Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, Or of obedience which leads to righteousness. So whether we like it or not everyone serves somebody. And this idea that there is absolute freedom. It's it's a mirage. It's a facade. It's not true. What you've just done is made yourself a slave to sin. Now you're not going to feel the burden of that perhaps for some time to come. But that that price is going to have to be paid. There is a, a penalty to sin. As we saw in James and in Proverbs, the penalty to sin is death. The question is whether you will pay it or Christ will pay it for you. So the young man in Proverbs 7, he gets close to sin. He starts sneaking about in case he wants to avail himself of the opportunity. He wants to avail himself of that opportunity. He wants that freedom. And then he just deceives himself. If you look at verses 13 through 15, she seizes him and kisses him. And with bold face, she says to him, I had to offer sacrifices. And today I have paid my vows. So now I have come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly. And I have found you. I am not entirely sure what is intended by this part, particularly verse 14, when she mentions offering sacrifices and paying vows. Um, Again, kind of depending on how you render it. It could be the idea that she has already offered her peace offerings uh, or is just about to. And so she has perhaps the very fine and choice meat from that offering or 
whatever was left over there in her house, and she's offering that to him. Meaning she's just spinning the web even further. She throws herself at him in verse 13. She offers him a fine meal in her company in verse 14. And then she inflates his ego in verse 15. I've been looking for you. And so on. There's a degree of sense that makes. Um, There are others who feel the idea is that since she's just offered her peace offerings and sacrifices, she's claiming to be a, a, a spiritual person too. Claiming not to be really all that bad. Maybe trying to sort of ease him into the situation, though they both know how it's intended to go. Um, Not confronting him with the sin immediately, trying to make it seem almost okay, just allowing him to trick himself into thinking it's all right. It's not going to be sinful. It's not really going to be all that bad. And then just stepping even closer. Honestly, I don't know. Um, I don't know if it's the former or the latter. I will tell you in regards to that latter, I'm trying to help him ease into the situation and deceive himself into thinking, you know, that sinful thing that I'm, I'm trying to do isn't, isn't going to happen and just kind of try to push it out of his head. Sin does work that way. How many times are we lured by something under the guise of good things? I know that this really isn't the best way to make this money. I know that I really should be more clear about all the stuff that's wrong with this vehicle. But if I tell them about everything, then I'm, I might not get, they might not buy the car. And I need to sell it. I need this money. Um, or this, this business practice that I really shouldn't be involved in. I need to take care of my family. I, I'm just going to... It'll be all right. Or the, the kind of age-old idea that intimacy equals love. How many times do you have a, a girl or a guy succumb to to that sexual temptation that they have no business engaging in because they think the person loves them um or what happens more often not than not for for christians is we deceive ourselves into not caring about the consequences in the heat of that moment you push them to the back of your mind and you get into that moment because you've kidded yourself when you thought i can handle the temptation i'm not i'm not getting close to it i'm okay there's still this barrier. Now there's this smaller barrier. Now there's this other smaller barrier still. And despite every single warning from someone older who knows better than I do, I'm strong enough, I can handle it. Or perhaps influencing others to do good, even by using um, disreputable tactics to make it happen. Thinking it's okay to deceive them because the end result is, is good for them. A parent telling a child something that's not true in order to get them to obey a command that they think has, has good purpose. Um, you know, Santa's not going to bring you any presents if you don't act right. Got a couple of issues with all of that. But whether you go in for the whole Santa business or not, you've at least got to see the fault in that. Um, I, I saw a video this week, as a matter of fact. Um, Little boy being told by dad that Father Christmas rung him last night and said he's on the naughty list. If he doesn't straighten up, he's not going to get any presents. Would it surprise you to say that that little boy had a less than favorable reaction to that? As a matter of fact, he said he'd uppercut Santa if he didn't bring him some presents and get him off the naughty list. I wonder where the kid got the bad attitude from. So maybe it is that this woman lures this young man by saying, I'm a religious woman. I, I, I've, you know, we're not, we're not going to get into anything. I've sought you, you specifically. I'm a good person too. And perhaps it is that he's lured by someone who really appears to care about him. Verse 15, I've come out to meet you, to seek you eagerly, and I've found you. 
I don't know exactly what is the meaning of the, the sacrifices. If you have a better understanding on that, I'd love to hear it. But how many times have we been lured into some sin because we thought it would offer us something that was important to us? Someone's love, someone's respect, that closeness with that person, or just what we thought was what we wanted in that particular moment. And we deceive ourselves and just keep walking into the trap. As we said, sin does operate um, that way many times. Um, and it's worthy of consideration. I, I wonder if what this woman in Proverbs 17 doesn't have, is to, have in mind is just weaving the web for him. The great food, the great evening, all of this with the woman who's chosen him specifically. And at this, at this point, he longs for it too. He's been longing for it for a while. And it seems clear from what she offers him um, that she's aware of that. I want you to notice Proverbs 7 verses 16 through 18. She says, I've spread my couch with coverings, colored linens from Egyptian linen. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh, aloes, and cinnamon. Come, let us take our fill of love till the morning. Let us delight ourselves. I want you to notice the sensory appeal of all of this. The senses that are satisfied here with sight and smell and touch and taste. All of it. Everything he could dream of. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes, John mentions in 1 John 2. Those desires in all their varieties, whether they are sensual or otherwise, they are something that afflict us all. And yet the Bible repeatedly tries to tell us to live above them. Um, we saw in, in the book of Isaiah, and when we've been studying our class, God makes the point Animals are smart enough to know who their master is, and yet my people have turned their backs on me, their master. Every animal that has ever walked the earth has been drawn by these same sorts of appeals, those physical senses. But you and I don't just have the physical to us, we have the breath of God in us. We have God's spirit in us. So the same way as God says in Isaiah, you know, even the animals are, are, are doing better than you right now and you need to shape up. We need to do better than the animals in this regard and not just feed our baser desires. So she's appealed to him that she will satisfy him in every way in verse 14 and especially in verse 18. Your version may say, let us drink our fill. But all that satisfaction is going to turn out just as empty as the words she's speaking. So we draw close. We make sure not to get caught, sneak about. We want the freedom to do what we're wanting to do. We deceive ourselves that there's something good that will come of this, or at least not as much bad as we should rightly think. And we want to satisfy those senses. And the final thought is that we believe we won't get caught. Verse 19 for my husband is not at home. He's going on a long journey. He took a bag of money with him and at full moon he'll come home. Meaning I know exactly when he's coming back. We've got all the time we need. I can't think of why anybody would ever commit a sin when they know they're going to get caught in it. We don't usually do that. We commit sins when we think we won't get caught. But I suspect you know well what is written in Numbers 32 and verse 23. You have sinned against the Lord and be sure your sin will find you out. Um, 
When I first started preaching, one of the decisions that I made was that the majority of what I would use as motivation to others for them to live godly would be God himself. And what I mean by that was the glory of God, his power, his majesty, his love for us, his blessings, his grace, and all of that, of course, seen ultimately in Jesus and his sacrifice. Those were going to be the things that I mentioned most often in my sermons and my classes as what should motivate us to choose to do what is right. Um, I wanted it to be the glory of God, the love of God, not the fear of hell that kept my brothers and sisters in Christ faithful. Um, If all that keeps me in obedience to God is fear of him and not love for him, then that's a big problem. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. But fear of hell has its place. Fear of suffering has its place. Um, Every parent knows how it works with a child. Fear that belt. That belt will work. Maybe the timeouts don't, but that belt will work. Um, And maybe it was for you as it was for me. When I became a Christian, it was in part because I was afraid that I was going to be lost. I was scared, bad scared, and rightfully so. Godly fear, or perhaps even we might call it holy terror, has a place. And I ought to speak about those things because God certainly does. Over and over again, he'll tell the Israelites, if you obey and be faithful, I'll be faithful to you. I'll keep you and I'll bless you. I'll be a father to you. But if you won't, I will drive you from me. Uh, In Deuteronomy 28, that famous chapter where God is listing the blessings and cursings for Israel, explaining to them how he'll bless them if they keep covenant with God and how he'll punish them if they don't to try to bring them back. God's blessings and the good things of God are enumerated in the first 14 verses. The warnings, the admonishments, the descriptions of God's punishments should the children of Israel turn to sin and idols are expounded upon in verses 15 through 68. And if you know your Old Testament history, you know they still didn't get the point. Sometimes we can be dumbass or dumber than animals and just pursue our desires. Same as Israel does in, in the book of Isaiah, or Judah does, excuse me. I believe a very profitable and convincing way for us to deal with sin in our own lives is to always be mindful of the fact that you and I are not going to be able to hide one whit of what we've done. There will be eternal consequences for what we've done. To say nothing of all the many potential earthly consequences for the sinful things that we choose to do. So then to go ahead and bring this to a close, what's the solution? It is is at least simple in principle. Proverbs chapter 5 verse 7. And now my son, listen to me and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her and do not go near the door of her house. 
As we said at step one, you cannot overemphasize the need just to keep away from that edge altogether. Keep yourself far, far away, and it won't become a problem for you. A couple of examples, then we'll close. Maybe you think it's not really a big deal at first to, to play a little low-stakes um, poker games, gambling, whatnot, online. But of course, that's how a lot of addicted gamblers got started, with that low-stakes kind of stuff. Don't go there. To um, allow yourself, ladies, or guys, your, your wife or your daughters, to start dressing a little immodestly, without saying something, without stressing it repeatedly, without outright forbidding it, because you're not sure anything will really come from, from just that. Don't go there. To get into that compromising situation with that person you are close to, but not married to. And I think it's alright, we can stretch out together on the couch to watch this movie, it's not going to go anywhere. You kidding me? Don't go there. Now those are just a couple of examples, and there are all sorts of different forms of sin. And we could sit here from morning over the next several hours sharing just countless examples of how sins in our lives begin with small things. Sometimes big sins that started with small things. And none of it would have happened if it wouldn't have started with that small thing. We could have avoided the small thing if we'd have just not gone there altogether. So... I thank you for your attention this morning, and I hope we will listen to the lessons that the proverb writer is teaching us and cut this stuff off before it develops. Lest we too become, as James says, carried away with desire. And as he said back in verse 15, desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. It might be this morning that there is something that we can do to help you. Not everybody needs to share everything with everybody. If you have a private sin that can be dealt with privately, so be it. But sometimes even with the private sins, we need a brother or a sister in Christ, or maybe even all of our brethren, to encourage us and keep us accountable. If this morning you need to share something with your family in Christ as a whole, that would be a good time to do that. And I assure you, we will give you compassionate ears. Or perhaps you need to make us your family in Christ this morning by becoming a Christian today. If we can help you stop the process of sin so that we can be pleasing to God and live with him in comfort one day, we are here for you. Be it for prayers, for repentance, for joining the family of God, whatever it may be, the invitation is yours this morning. Always stand and sing.